Nobody went to school for sales. Each of us has our own journey, a journey that ultimately reveals the two opposing forces, the art versus science, the relationships versus the metrics, selling versus sales. What side are you on? This is the Love Selling, Hate Sales podcast. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by Nelson Gilliatt. He is the author of Death of the SDR, Birth of Buyer-Centric Revenue. He's also the CEO of Buyer-Centric Revenue, which is a B2B marketing and sales consultancy. Nelson, thank you for joining the show. It's great to have you. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Good to be here. Yeah. So let's jump right in and talk a little bit about, you wrote a book called Death of the SDR, Birth of Buyer-Centric Revenue. There's got to be some sort of backstory that leads into how someone writes a book like that. It's a pretty, you know, powerful statement in the name itself. Yeah. And, um, you know, I guess you, you get in the marketing game for a while and, and you're trying to be edgy and stuff like that. But really, the intention is very good. And, and you know, as we go through, um, we'll see that it's not just marketing fluff to catch eyes. It's really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help people out here and, and so basically, you know, I've been in the B2B marketing and sales game for a while now. You know, I started off as an SDR and then, you know, moved into the AE role as mm-hmm. most often do. And then I was uh, AE slash CSM. So I was kind of like, a, you know, a hybrid role. And then, you know, I, and, and throughout kind of, I've always worn many different hats. So I was always doing sort of product marketing, demand gen, content marketing. And then I kind of transitioned more into the marketing bits and pieces. Okay. And as I've kind of gone through, I've just sort of noticed that, you know, there's just a lot of problems that are going on in both marketing and sales that, um, you know, I think are just plaguing people and are frustrating people and causing marketers and sellers to have, um, you know, less productive and less fulfilling careers. Um, and uh, so it's just making our jobs unnecessarily harder. And I was trying to search for the causes of these problems mm-hmm. and trying to fix them. And so um, I just sort of became, you know, obsessed with that. And that ended up turning into a book, um, you know, at, at the time that I was working at a very small startup and trying to build something from the ground up. And I was trying to build this ideal model. I started to sort of, you know, my thoughts kind of morphed into the to, to book, it, you know, because I wanted to be able to have this. I wanted to be able to, um, you know, it, have the freedom to do this model. And I think a lot of marketers and sellers are probably looking to have, to have the freedom and the resources to do certain things, but they can't. Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, you know, the goal really is to kind of bring some of these problems to light. Um, fundamentally, I think the, the predictable revenue model is the source of most of these problems um, and has markers themselves in a straitjacket, which is why I challenge that model. And I present a new model called the buyer-centric revenue model. Um, so I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of go through all, all, all the bits and pieces of it, but that's kind of everything in a nutshell. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, obviously we're going to dive into what some of those problems are because I think, you know, people know what you're talking about inherently if you're in the space, but articulating them is another thing. So maybe even if you, I, I like this dichotomy of predictable revenue versus buyer-centric revenue. And, you know, I, I'm thinking of this, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper with the line down the middle, right? And we've got, you know, buyer-centric revenue on the other and we've got predictable revenue on the other side. So let's do that. Let's play that game right now. Give me an example of something that would live in the old predictable revenue model and how it would be flipped or shifted in the buyer-centric model. Yeah, sure. So the predictable revenue model, just so people know, um, the predictable revenue model is the, um, 
you know, the playbook, the marketing sales playbook that most B2B companies run on to some extent. Um, and the playbook kind of started in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then was popularized in 2011 by Aaron Ross in his book, Predictable Revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, essentially, Predictable Revenue calls for two things. One is like a marketing thing, and the second is a sales thing. And the marketing thing is for SDRs, um, you know, to have people do prospecting full time. And then the sales thing uh, is the sales assembly line. Um, in other words, seller specialization. Um, there's four primary subdivisions, but in practice, they're often even further subdivided. But mm-hmm. those four types of sellers or those four subdivisions of sales are the account executive or the AE, the sales engineer or the SE, the customer success manager or the CSM, and the account manager or the AM. And then, you know, the buyer goes to these handoffs, you know, type of thing. And sort of the, the, the relationship the, the, is kind of thrown out the window and the buyer is sort of like a widget on the assembly line. Um, and so uh, that's kind of the predictable revenue in a nutshell. Um, in addition to that, I identified sort of two problems that I think beset sales and denigrate sales and hold sales back and harm sellers. Um, and they also harm buyers and the companies, you know, that employ these sellers. But um, those two things are commissions and quota. And that's not the fault of predictable revenue that's been around for a while. <laughs> you know, they, they almost kind of almost go synonymous with sales. Um, and I think, um, you know, these type of, yeah, so these type of fundamental things, um, I'm hoping to kind of, you know, unpack a little bit and sort of, you know, I know it's a bit out of left field, but we'll kind of break that down a little bit. But fundamentally, the buyer-centric revenue model um, looks at the predictive revenue model and says, hey, you know, that's really outdated. It's based on 20 years ago and technology has changed the way that buyers, you know, buy and want to be marketed to and, and how they want to be sold to has, has changed and what marketing can do nowadays to woo buyers in the door, make buyers aware and request to speak to sales and everything um, has totally changed. Um, and, but yet the model hasn't. And so I see that marketers and sellers are in this sort of straitjacket um, where they're forced to do things they shouldn't do, and they're prevent, you know, they're, you know, prevented from doing the things they should do, and that I see a lot of high turnover, low tenure, low productivity, low performance, um, and, and low job satisfaction. A lot of marketers are, you know, uh, running to B 2 C or they're running to freelance and consulting. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't think we need to say like, you know, we know SDRs are suffering. Um, you know, we know that they're trying to move into productive and fulfilling roles as fast as possible. Um, we know they're not performing. Same thing with sellers too, um, although SDRs have it the worst. Um, so, uh, you know, we're in bad shape really, I think. Um, and I think unless we challenge the source of these problems, unless we challenge the, the root, which is the predictive revenue model, um, and then in addition to that commissions and quota, we will continue to struggle, we'll continue to be frustrated, we'll continue to um, kind of be set up for failure. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if you, you know, you talk about predictable revenue model as the root cause, and I can, I can buy into that for sure. What about the fact that you have to follow the money typically when you look at any sort of, you know, big industrial problem like that, at least that you're, you're looking out for. And oftentimes the, the venture money or the PE money is, 
you know, applying that playbook to all their investments. So how do you shift the script at the company level if your funding is coming through, listen, this is the playbook we run, this is how we do it, and, and that's the vicious cycle you're going to go in because these companies are ultimately looking to get backed and funded and bought and those types of things. And that's one of the things that gets put in front of them is here's the predictable revenue playbook model that we're going to run. Yeah, so a large, a large part of it is just educating, um, you know, marketers and sales leaders and CEOs and venture capitalists and PE firms, you know, any and, and just, you know, that 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 is not the marketing sales playbook for today. Um, mm. You know, maybe it was 20 years ago, but if you want to grow better, if you want to grow faster, easier, um, you know, more and at less cost. Um, then that is just not the way and that you're getting in your own way if you run that. And so companies today, as I said, run it to an extent. There's, you know, the predictable revenue model is kind of a component. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have like a mixture of both good and bad marketing and, you know, uh, you know, and get in some good and bad sales and, you know, and um, it's not to say that companies can't ever grow at all with the predictable revenue. It's just that it's just going to, you know, be harder, require a lot more money and, um, you know, and um, just, yeah, it's just, it, your, your growth won't be as, as good as it can and should be. Um, and um, so I think it's just showing people that there's a much better way um, and much more efficient way, much more effective way. Um, so, and then, you know, helping companies sort of when they look at their own company to, to analyze both components, like look at the look at to the extent that they're running a particular revenue model, like look at how that's um, harming things and then look at the good stuff, be able to kind of separate them out and then say, Hey, yeah, like doesn't it make sense to be investing in the bad parts of our marketing and sales? Let's fully double down and focus on good marketing and good sales. Um, A lot of times companies don't realize that because they don't separate the components out. So, you know, if a company is hitting their revenue targets and their pipeline targets, they're not going to look too closely, sure. even though they realize that, like, you know, sustainable. yeah, it's like, you know, if you got a headache, but it's okay, it, you know, it's not a bad headache, so you don't really care for the Advil. Right. Um, but if you got a really bad he- headache, and let's say you're missing revenue and you're missing pipeline and, you know, your conversion rates aren't looking too good and your sales cycles, you know, are worse for wear, then um, you start to look beneath the hood and a lot of people aren't separating those two components out when they do look beneath the hood. And so they do the only thing that they know how to do, which is they double down on the old models. Mm-hmm. They do more prospecting, more uh, telemarketing, more uh, email spam, more LinkedIn spam. Um, and they create more friction for the buyer and they turn buyers off and these buyers tune out. And, you know, um, and so, you know, and just make lives more difficult for marketers and they make life more difficult for sellers. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that there's a bit of an awareness campaign that's, that just needs to happen to show people that there's just a much better way. Yeah. Well, let's break down the model a little bit, right? Like typically when you're doing an evaluation, right, you run a, a consulting agency or consulting firm. So you're always looking across people, process and technology, right? Mm-hmm. So let's look at the buyer centric revenue model through those, those, through those three lenses. Um, let's talk about the people, right? You mentioned that under predictive revenue, there are these specializations, the SDR, the AE, the CSM, the AM, and the solution consultant or solution engineer. How does that look different under the uh, the buyer-centric revenue model? 
Yeah, so the buyer-centric revenue model in a nutshell to kind of unpack that, because, you know, I'm sorry, I did a big teardown on particular revenue, but I didn't, you know, I I should also show what the buyer-centric revenue model is. So there is a positive message in this all, guys. And so the buyer-centric revenue model um, basically calls for sunsetting um, SDRs uh, and prospecting uh, entirely in favor of what I consider to be good modern marketing. where marketing is, um, you know, solely focused on doing like buyer-friendly marketing um, and, uh, you know, focusing on generating website demo requests. So, um, you know, and then marketing is also, you know, aligned with sales on being accountable to real KPIs and real metrics. So revenue and quality pipeline and pipeline efficiency. So, you know, number of customers, number of opportunities, cost per opportunity, conversion rate, sales cycle, CAC, CAC payback. Um, And yeah, so, you know, tossing prospecting out and putting in good marketing. Um, And so that's sort of the foundation um, for, you know, for marketing in the model. And then for sales, um, it tosses out the seller specialization, the sales assembly line, the buyer handoff, in favor of a one-to-one relationship between a buyer and a seller, um, in which the seller, you know, is a complete seller, and they handle both the initial sale expansion and retention. Of course, you know, they can have help, you know, um, it, you know, for technical expertise or for implementation, or you know, um, but fundamentally, there's there's a one-to-one buyer-seller relationship. There isn't these, you know, this this assembly line and um, you know that that will hopefully give sellers more efficacy, more 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 satisfaction. You know, to build a book of business, build relationships, and that'll be more uh, you know enjoyable for the buyer um, who, who prefers that. And then also for the companies to not have this massive sales organization. And then in addition to that, um, the buyer-centric revenue model um, throws out quotas um, for sales in favor of annual sales team goals. Um, like any other B2B department and just like B2B companies themselves, they have annual goals and then they measure progress on a monthly quarterly basis. Um, it's the same thing for sales. Um, you know, I think uh, quotas are, are, are very harmful and counterproductive to, to sellers and therefore to buyers and to then the companies uh, themselves. And so in addition to that, the, the last thing around commissions. Um, so I, I also see commissions um, uh, uh, similar to quotas, like it's a practice that sort of sales are used to, but I see it as really harmful, really outdated, really counterproductive, undesirable, unfair, whatever, and that that should be sunsetted in favor of a full salary as opposed to a half salary under the commission model plus a bonus. So um, sunsetting the half commission, half salary model in favor of a full salary plus bonus um, compensation for sellers so that sellers can focus on building a good relationship rather than fretting over their finances and pressuring buyers and all that type of stuff, which is the real purpose behind quota and commissions, I believe, Um, you know, at least today, um, you know, that that's the function it serves is to, is to pressure sell and, and to kind of encourage desperation and, and I would say irrational type of greed among sellers. Do you think that doing away with, those things will change the profile of the people that get into sales? Yes. I think you'll find the return of sellers who just, who, um, you know, want to help people and build relationships and and build a book of business. 
Um, and, you know, um, they aren't people who um, just kind of, you know, are going for the kill or there's, there's a bit of a stereotype in sales where it's like, you know, they use a lot of military analogies where it's like adversarial against the buyer, um, you know, because your livelihood's on the line. So you've got to go out and hunt your prey and you eat what you kill and that's your commission. So I think you're going to have people who are just good people person who, um, you know, they're not looking to annoy buyers who aren't interested in speaking to them. They're looking to help buyers who are interested in speaking to them. And then to help those folks evaluate and answer their questions and make them feel comfortable dropping six figures on your expensive software and making sure they get, you know, hooked up with the people internally and, um, you know, whether it's the technical folks or the, the trainers or the implementers and, you know, making sure they're happy and, you know, um, and so I think that's that, that's really why people go into sales, these sort of people folks and you get a lot of pride when you have a book of business um, you know, a lot of customers that you've helped over the years and you've seen them grow and, you know, and, and they like you, hopefully there's a bit, sometimes a lot of friendships can occur and you hang out with them sometimes personally, although that doesn't have to be the case. It could just be like, you know, you just have a nice relationship. It doesn't mean like, you know, you're the best man at the wedding, but it's like, it's an extra plus, you know, in sales, if you do have a nice relationship with people where you kind of just have a good time and you have good chats, maybe you hang out in person, things like that. So I think that's the type of seller that will be attracted to that. Um, and I think it is also, you know, so much like sales that I think is so unattractive to a lot of people nowadays, a lot of people that are turned off to the profession or get into the profession and then turn out of the profession. Um, you know, I think you, you, you'll, you'll start to see more, more people, more high caliber people coming in, staying in for longer, um, you know, um, so, so yeah. Do, do you think it's, impossible for the seller to separate the commission from the buyer's best interests, or do you think it just attracts the wrong type of people? I think to a certain extent, because um, I think a lot of people come into sales with like, you know, but then they're like, uh, then they get introduced to the idea of commissions and they're kind of taught that like to yearn for it. And that, and then they kind of, that, then the commission plus the quotas plus the sales assembly line kind of then instills certain attitudes among sellers. I think that's for the most part. Um, you know, and so, um, you know, anyone in sales will tell you and they, you know, and the quote is on and that short term monthly quota and then, you know, and the, and the commission, both are kind of like a whip at your back and a little bit like a false carrot, uh, you know, at least in the, in the case of commissions, as both to stick in a false carrot. Um, and so, you know, you can, I think with a proper salary, again, full OT, like, you know, your full salary plus bonus, you can make a lot of money in sales. Um, and uh, the better the seller, the more experienced seller, the bigger your salary and the bigger your bonus, just like in any other role. Mm. Um, and so, you know, if you're selling schmancy enterprise software, you're probably going to get a tastier salary, um, you know, especially at a venture-backed or P-backed company, mm. who, you know, they can afford to bring on the best type of talent. Um, and then, yeah, like if you're a seller and if you're a proper seller and you have a book of business, then you become very profitable to the company because you've got, I don't know, 50, 100, however many customers that you're looking after who like love you. And so the company will pay you top dollar because you're a product expert and you have these relationships and things like that. So, um, you know, I, I think it will weed out the people who have no interest in, in, in helping buyers and in having a, a proper relationship with buyers and, and are just kind of after the commission ferry, because I think some people compare that to like the thrill of 
of gambling, um, mm-hmm. where you just kind of like you get this, you know, you're just chasing, 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 chasing the commission, and then you know um, you're pressuring the buyers, or, may, or maybe, and not to say that it will, but it, I think it incentivizes or it, it encourages. Not to say that everyone on the commission is, it, it, you know, does bad things, but just like I think it encourages bad behaviors and incentivizes mm-hmm. that, um, and so. Um, you know, I, I think it'll drive those type of people out who don't belong in sales properly. Um, and then I think a lot of people who um, have been turned off to sales because of commissions, especially I would say people who are more financially savvy or have been burned by commissions many times, as many people have, mm-hmm. especially um, more experienced sellers. So as you get older in your life, you take on greater financial obligations, um, you know, marriage and you know, kids and mortgages and cars and things like that and vacations. And so, um the way I see it, um, yes, like, okay, some sellers some of the time can make like quite a lot of money with commissions, but that's just like some people some of the time can like when they're playing the stocks or the gambling. And like, <laughs> I also, try, yeah, and I also try to tell people that like a dollar of sell, a dollar of salary and bonus is far superior to a dollar of commission. So if you think about commission, um, you know, it, you have no idea if and when and how much of it you'll make. And it's largely outside of your control. It depends on like the buyer's decision to purchase and the buyer's and the seller has very little influence on that actually. Like most of the buyer's decision is, you know, their self-learning largely through marketing efforts. Um, and the buyer can buy despite the seller, you know, say the seller is lousy, but the buyer's need is dire and there's, you know, not much competition or whatever, or the marketing was really good, sure. or the product is really good, or the buyer or the seller can do everything right. But it's still up to the buyer, and the buyer may not buy, even though they can. Not should. Right fit, yeah. Yeah, or marketing. The lead to marketing, like marketing isn't doing a great job, and, and the seller, you know, so why should the seller have to pay for that? Um, and so uh, I, I think that's a big thing to kind of understand is that it, commissions aren't predictable revenue for for sellers. Like mm-hmm. you know, you've got half your salary is predictable, but half of it is unpredictable and largely outside of control. In addition to that, we all know sort of all the gimmicks with commissions, all the nuances and <laughs> clawback thresholds, uh, ceiling, this, that, and the other mm-hmm. to sort of manipulate seller's behavior. And that changed every year. And so it's always like a new commission plan and there's all this headache and everything like that. Sales leaders waste an enormous amount of time, I think, yeah. and, and finance people trying to chart these commissions. And then they, anyway, and then, um, you know, if you're a seller and there's ramp up time, right? So in, in your sales cycle, so it's like, you know, when do I actually make the commissions? Who knows? It could take a lot of time. And then you, whenever your quarter resets, you typically your commissions also reset. And then, mm-hmm. and then because commissions get tapped higher, um, you know, rather than a salary. So you lose more of your commissions. Plus it's harder to get a loan because it's variable income. And so um, when you sort of consider all of these type of factors, and then you also take into context, like no other department in B2B gets paid with commissions. And, and if they did, they'd probably strike. Like they don't want commissions. Like no one's really like, oh, bummer, woe is me. I don't have commissions. Like the whole point about working for someone else and working for another company is the nine to five paycheck where you get a good salary and you get a good bonus. And like even sales leaders to a large extent have started to become more aware of that over the years is when sales leaders go to young companies and then mm-hmm. these young companies offer them no salary, but say, hey, here's some equity. Um, and then they're like, oh yeah, okay, equity. And then they realize they get none of that. Right. Um, and then they and they typically get let go in a year or two or something like that. And so, um, you know, I think they're slowly trying to realize, well, why do I want to pay my sellers with the same uncertainty that I wish to avoid? Right. And so, um, I think there's a lot of little education that goes on there. And I know that was a massive tangent about commissions. And there's a whole <laughs> other stuff that we can unpack. But I'm very, I, I think that this is something that, you know, I hope a lot of people kind of investigate. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. And I, I wonder, so there was some recent Gartner research within the last 12 months that said that a, a really high percentage, I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say it's possibly north of 75% of people said that they would prefer an experience, a buying experience without a salesperson if it were possible, right? So do you think that what you're describing here is one of the cause and effect type of things for that type, you know, for what's coming out of the research, you know, why buyers are feeling so exasperated with the sales process is because of the things that you're outlining, the high pressure quota, high pressure commissions, the predictable revenue model, like mm -hmm. the specialization. Do you think those are the things that are causing the buyer and the market to, to react that way? I think partly, I think the larger part of it is that sellers, um, uh, buyers are self-learning. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of information that they can access without a seller. Um, you know, thanks to the internet and what you know, the, all the information that marketing puts out like on the website and their content and everything. And so, you know, um, by the time that the, you know, the seller, the buyer is basically doing most of their journey, uh, buyer's journey by the time they get to sales. Um, and, and typically they want to, you know, engage with sales much later. And oftentimes, um, you know, you know, buyers sometimes never even have to interact with sales. It could be fully buyer self-service um, or, or to a sizable extent, thanks to marketing. Um, and so, but I also do think that, that, you know, buyers to, you know, to an extent that there are buyers that want and need and sales, um, and they want their assistance. And when they want a seller, they want a seller that's not, that has their best interest in mind. That's win-win. That's like, you know, um, isn't depending on their livelihood for their decision and isn't pressuring them or under promising and, or sorry, over promising and under delivering or bringing on bad fits and all this type of stuff. So. I think there are companies who've kind of woken up to that, at least in the commission sector, like Backblaze, Microchip Technology, CultureAmp, Pluralsight, um, to name a few off the top of my head, where they've abandoned commissions. And then they've talked about like the the total change in the buyer's experience plus the seller's experience. Like it was such, it was such an amazing win when they right. kind of abandoned that. And you see it also in B2C companies like Tesla or Charles Schwab and like the other brokerages firms. They just realized like, we should just pay our people or to some extent you can even look at waiters in the U S or the service sector mm -hmm. where in Europe they get paid properly with a salary, but then in the U S they get kind of stiffed on salary. And then the employer shifts the cost of, of, um, of uh, compensation to the customer, to the buyer. Mm -hmm. So that, it, and then Uber realized that that wasn't a great experience. And so right. Uber got rid of that and gave the buyers a really nice experience as opposed to like, you know, the whole tipping at the end of the cab ride, that was always awkward. And mm -hmm. like, you know, so anyway, um, so I, uh, so yeah, I think it does harm buyers. Like the, like the buyer has to go and why I called it the buyer centric revenue model, even though it was like, maybe it should have been like, um, save marketing and save sales model. <laughs> um, because it's like in order for marketing sales to be successful, we have to conform to the way that buyers want to be marketed to and sold to not the way that we think we ought to like, you know, and, and jam the buyer through our process. And so, I wrote the book from the perspective of the buyer just to kind of say that like, you know, if we, yeah, we, if, you know, it's like in dating, it's like, if you want to be successful in a relationship, you can't be a jerk. You know, yeah. you can't, you can't put up all these friction and expect the other person to like you and want to dance with you. So I, I see in marketing in particular, um, you know, uh, right now, um, essentially a lot of marketers are still forced to generate a high volume a, of contact information of uninterested buyers. Sure. And that is what an MQL is. 
Because what they and then they would give that basically they give that to the SDRs and the SDRs basically do what I consider the worst form of marketing, which is prospecting, which which entails, you know, telemarketing, email spam, and LinkedIn spam, mm-hmm. um, which obviously turns off buyers and buyers tune out and they don't appreciate that. It's not harmonious with how buyers want to be marketed to, and so the results of that are, are pretty are pretty uh, dismal compared to proper and good marketing. But a lot of marketers basically are forced to do this type of stuff and spend a lot of time, money, uh, you know, capital and all that type of things in, in that type of uh, doing that type of marketing. And so that, that kind of crowds out, I think, the good marketing. Um, and so, you know, um, I, I, I just see, you know, a lot of buyers are very frustrated with, you know, and, and really annoyed by all the telemarketing, all this type of stuff. And they're, they're like really they've had enough basically um and then you know as another example when the buyers are interested and they do want to speak to sales and they come on the website and they hit like request a, request a demo they kind of put through the whole ring around the rosy and all this friction um qualification yeah where it's like this manual qualification and demo scheduling when that can just be automated on the website and a lot of companies are wising up to that and doing that and connecting and automatically qualifying the buyers and then connecting them right to sales um, and uh, making sure that those meetings actually hold and that, and that these meetings occur faster and that because these meetings, like because you're not spending a week or two trying to schedule this stuff that the buyer is and also speaking to a couple other competitors. And so the deal is actually more likely to win because there's less people at the table. Um, and so, you know, I think ultimately in SaaS, like it is such a competitive advantage to have a good buyer's experience, like to have a good marketing and sales. So like, yeah, you've got competitors and everyone's got the same product and similar features and similar pricing, but that's where marketing and sales come in. It's like, you know, you go to the bar, right? And every guy is good looking, um, you know, and what sets you, we are. yeah, at least we hope we, are. we all think we are, but what sets you apart is the, the experience you give to the other person. And like, are you charming are you, or are you a jerk? So it's like, you know, um, and so I even see nowadays, so like basically marketing is there's sort of like, remember that there's the two components. There's like good marketing and bad marketing. So there's a lot of good marketing that goes on. And I can mm-hmm. talk about what good marketing looks like and how to generate demand and, you know, build a good reputation and whatnot. But, uh, and I think that's important to cover. Um, but like marketing does all this good stuff to like get buyers to, to know and like you and yeah. get and then what happens is like the buyers are consuming marketing as content. They're like, you know, tuning into the podcast, they're coming to your events, they're like in your community, um, they're, they're um, on your website, they're checking out your reviews. And so they're kind of picking up what marketing's putting down, which is what you want. And then you eventually yeah. want them to like, they're going to go to your website and they're going to see the get a demo button. And that's when they're, they're like, okay, I want to undertake an evaluation and I'm ready to kind of go through that whole song and dance. Right. Um, but like the predictive revenue model says, no, 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 um, you know, and then this is where lead scoring and intent data and uh, ABM comes in. They say, all right, let us prioritize which uninterested buyers we should annoy. And these are the buyers that are like, no and like you. And that's the, they're like, you know, it's like the girl, you know, you chat up the girl at the bar and she knows and she likes you. And then, and then you're a jerk to her at the end. And then you wonder why you don't get her number. Right. Um, but, you know, and you get slapped across the face. And sure. then, yeah. And so, you know, I think that, that, you know, unless, and so basically what I, what I recommend to people or what good marketing looks like is like nowadays, right? Like we already know how buyers want to be marketed or whatever, but marketing can do so much stuff to, to get people aware of your message or what your company does in a way that the buyers enjoy, you know, like a lot of it's like consuming, 
you know, content, whether it's audio, video, mm-hmm. you know, uh, written visual, so blogs and podcasts and events and roundtables and panels and, you know, posts on LinkedIn and stuff like that, or ads on LinkedIn or Facebook on, or ads on YouTube, whatever, where it's like, you know, you're becoming aware of these companies and you're developing affinity for them. And, you know, uh, and then you check out the website, you check out the reviews or, you know, marketers can do like influencer marketing or co-marketing with partners or whatnot. Um, you know, people who have audiences and everything. Um, there's just so much that marketing can do um, to bring to bring people all the way to a demo request, and then and that's really where marketing should be focusing. So I don't consider like the contact information of an uninterested buyer a lead. The, what I consider a lead is someone comes to the website, requests a demo, and marketing qualifies them. And that's the point at which I think it becomes a lead, and that's the thing that sales would want. Like that, sales should not want people who are not at that point yet. Like yeah, then you're just wasting that. your time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I know totally. that was a ramble, but I'll turn no, it over okay. back to you. So I'm curious if you've thought about the application across sectors, right? I mean, I think B2B SaaS is what primarily falls into this model, right? You know, because that's where we see all the predictable revenue application. But even in B2B SaaS, do you see that model working in an upper level enterprise type of situation, right? Where you've got mm-hmm. massive buying committees of eight to 10 people, multiple business units, multiple corporate sections, you know, that type of thing. How, how do you feel like this model fits in when you start to go up market? Yeah, sure. So I think um, that's one common objection. Um, I'm sorry, I think there's a truck that's making the, you know, I think that's the predictable revenue model trying to run interference on us. It's, but it's, it's trying to back into your garage. Yeah, exactly. So, um, sorry, can I jump in to repeat the question? Because I totally lost my train of thought. No, it's okay. I was just saying, how does the application of the buyer-centric model apply up market when you go into an enterprise sales motion, right? Yeah, yeah. Multiple members of a buying committee, lots of different moving parts, multiple business units, you know, the whole, the whole, mm. whole scenario. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, buyer preferences for how they like to be marketed to, like their preference for telemarketing, email spam, and LinkedIn spam, and for you annoying them, doesn't change based on how many coworkers they have. And so, um, yeah, I think the, the, the reason, I think the alleged justification or the rationalization to maintain the predictive revenue model, to maintain SDRs in the enterprise model, is only because the massive cost per acquisition um, with the SDR models off, is offset slightly, or, or I would say it's, it's slightly less harmful because of the average selling price. Right. Um, and so that's really why it still kind of lingers a little bit of they're trying to cling on to the enterprise, also in an enterprise, comp- you know, typically company. Anyway, well, what I would say is the same good marketing that can be done to woo buyers' hearts in small companies and middle mm-hmm. and middle-sized companies is the same in big companies. So it's like it, it doesn't change at all. I mean, like there's certain things you can, you know. So it really, yeah, it really doesn't change. Like, you know, if you want to attract people, at, at, you know, invite them onto your podcast. Go and guest podcast. Go co-create content with them. Um, go and host events and do all sorts of stuff and roundtables and panels and webinars and like help your audience like get your message out to your audience and paid ads and like, right. uh, you know, and then on the social channels where they hang out or go post on LinkedIn organic, like, you know, where, where your audience is spending a lot of time scrolling every day and then word of mouth spreads and referral spread and like the quote unquote dark social where buyers are kind of chatting amongst their peers and learning about you and you can't see that stuff, but it's there, um, you know, and uh, all that type of stuff. And so, 
and put stuff on the website for God's sakes. Like, you know, so many companies, right, they're trying to still hide information and like behind the sales and they gate information behind sales and the buyer never makes the sales. And then they wonder why there's no leads. It's like, well, put that information on the website, like put your demo recording on the website. Don't, you know, put your pricing on the website, at least ballpark or or pricing calculators, whatever, or whatnot. Um, you know, uh, just, just give that information out there to the buyers. They will pick it up. They will consume it. They will talk amongst each other. Um, they'll do their research and then they will come to you. And when they come to you, they are way further along their buying journey and they have brand preference, which means they're more likely to buy, buy faster at less cost, which is great for marketing efficiency and sales efficiency. And everyone's a happy camper and all that misalignment because marketing is producing junk MQLs or contact information. Um, and then sales get caught holding the bag because they're on the hook for revenue. And so that's in, and all the sellers are missing, you know, their revenue, uh, goals and things like that. So, yeah, <laughs> I almost feel like from a sales perspective, the model that you're outlining aligns a little bit better with the enterprise. Cause in a lot of ways, the enterprise does that already, right? You don't see enterprise sellers fall off as much, right? They typically have that one-to-one relationship and they own that relationship forever because when you're selling into the enterprise, you're not your first deal is not your biggest deal typically, right? Oftentimes you're looking at expansion revenue, uh, renewals, and all those types of things. So, oh yeah, it seems like almost taking an enterprise mentality down into the mid market and SMB markets. Yeah, well, I, yeah, and I had I had originally started off talking about the marketing, you know, marketing to enterprise. But yeah, sales, for, especially for enterprise deals, is the land and expand motion. So, mm-hmm. so the relationship is even more paramount. Right. Now, in when you know, if you're kind of selling, you know, transactional stuff, small small stuff, oftentimes maybe that's where buyer self service, you know, to, plays to a larger extent, right? Um, and stuff like that, but. Um, and again, marketing can do a lot of stuff um, with expansion and retention. So mm-hmm. in product marketing, right? So Definitely. in the app or in the product itself, you know, there's a lot of, and there's, you know, so there's a lot of um, things, you know, that marketing can do to enable a seller also with upsells and cross-sells and stuff like that. But fundamentally, like to the extent that a buyer wants a relationship with sales and needs help from sales, yeah. you know, you're just giving them someone who's going to give them a good relationship that they can trust. That is, you know, you know, that, that doesn't have the, this, terrible pressure of quotas and commissions and is paid properly and has, has a proper, um, you know, has a proper goal, um, annual goal, long-term mindset, things like that. And, you know, so. Well, this has been really great. So if you want to leave the audience with, you know, one key thing that they need to remember, right. From death of the SDR, buyer centric revenue models, predictable revenue, what do they need to remember? What's the key takeaway here? Yeah, sure. So if you want to liberate yourself to have more productive and fulfilling careers, then you really have to break free from the predictive revenue model. That's the cause of the problems you're seeing today. And then you need to work towards a, uh, you know, towards a better way, which is the buyer-centric revenue model. And in, in my book, um, you know, the, 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 the birth of buyer-centric revenue, I outlined four steps for, for folks to compare the two models, to test the two models, and gradually transition. Um, so I highly encourage that people run this experiment, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe just to kind of cover that very, very briefly, um, you know, if we've got time, it, the first thing is just to, you know, look underneath the hood in your CRM and compare the leads generated from prospecting slash SDRs versus the leads um, that marketing um, produces that submit demo requests on the website. And then if you compare that against revenue and, 
uh, conversion rate, sales cycle, the number of customers and the number of opportunities, CAC and CAC payback, you'll see it's night and day. And then you also estimate your resource allocation between good marketing and prospect and SDRs in terms of time, capital, and labor. And then you can kind of see where you're getting like, you know, which which is a better return on your investment right. and then double down on what's really working. Um, and then I recommend that, uh, you know, the second step, you know, you kind of propose a bit of a business case. So you take the theory, you take the data, and then mm-hmm. the, the, the experiment is to basically automate inbound demo scheduling and um, qualification on the website. So kind of sunsetting the SDR role for that, mm-hmm. um, repurposing the SDRs to more productive and fulfilling marketing activities, which they'd be thrilled with, give those SDRs quota relief, um, and then do run that for a few sales cycles um, and see how that goes. And then the last experiment is to gradually reduce prospecting outreach, to so reduce your telemarketing, reduce your your uh, email spam and your LinkedIn spam by 25% increments. Again, repurpose those SDRs to more productive marketing tasks, you know, content, DG, social, whatnot, um, which they'll be thrilled to do again and give them quarter relief for whatnot. Um, and then run that for a few sales cycles. And if successful, you double down and you continue to, and then make sure you're doing good marketing. Like, you know, you're going to need to replace, you know, you need to just make sure that you're doing the right, the right stuff as well. And, um, and then, you know, on the sales side, it's sort of similar. It's like, you know, uh, you know, look, look at the numbers, like look at your sales turnover, look at how the people are doing, the sales team is doing, look at the numbers and the sales of revenue and the conversion rates and all that. Look at the, you know, um, and then, uh, evaluate your sales org and you look at all the different subdivisions within sales and speak to your sellers about that and you know what they want to you know and maybe trial with your sellers any volunteers or people who want to be a you know um, you know complete seller and you know and then you could do a little test in the pilot and see how that goes let AEs hold on to their customers or let CS, you know let CSMs bring on customers and things um, and then, you know, even propose people, hey, do you want a full salary plus bonus or do you want your commission? Like, let them choose their compensation like they choose health insurance plans. I think it's very challenging that they don't offer that type of flexibility because I think it would be very clear that, you know, which one they would choose. Um, and so, you know, and, and, I, and I would, so yeah, I would, you know, encourage these type of tests or experiments that are outlined in the book that you kind of can run with that. Um, and then, you know, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Nelson Gilead, LinkedIn. Um, and if you if you ever just want to chat about what you're seeing and you got questions or, you know, you're kind of chewing on this stuff, but you need some guidance, I'm happy just to, you know, book a time with me just to chat. If you need, like, actual help and, like, need help implementing this and you kind of want to move from A to B, you know, I'm doing the consulting stuff as well, and so I can help you there. Um, but, yeah, so, but really, you know, I encourage everyone to kind of, on this, these, what we've talked about today, discuss it with folks, and then to the extent that you agree with it, take action. And if you don't agree with it, that's okay too. Then you can feel more confident in what you're doing today. Awesome, awesome. So you mentioned to find you on LinkedIn, Nelson Gilead. We'll absolutely do that. Is there a place we can find the book? Oh yes, the the book is on Amazon. Uh, right. you know, here, here I am talking about good marketing. And I forgot to promote yeah, my book. So we'll have the link to the book in the comments. <laughs> we'll have the link to your LinkedIn in the description out. Buyer-centric revenue consulting. Is that a website link too? Um, the website isn't live yet. Um, okay. It's in the works. Um, All right. We'll yeah. send them to LinkedIn. We'll send them yeah, to LinkedIn. LinkedIn. LinkedIn right now is the website. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you, Nelson. It was great to have you on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. Bye, everyone.